I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, it's uh, it's great to be sitting down with you today, Professor Schaefer. Um, I'll just do a little quick intro for you. Professor Schaefer, you are a founding director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. You are a professor in the Department of Philosophy and an ethics consultant with a special focus on issues in professional and biomedical ethics, business and environmental ethics. Now, this would be the point in which our third host, which is not who is not here today because he had a he had a, a very unexpected thing come up um, where he would say, I have no idea what that is. Please <laughs> tell me, please inform me, because I am I'm am literally I'm I'm literally lost for words. I don't even know what I just read. But in this case, you were talking to two of the two, the two more intelligent um, um, hosts of the show. So we do have a little bit of a sense of what that is. Um, but our, our main focus today in talking to you is going to be chatting about the ethics of vaccine passports, um, in, in, in Canada. And I guess, I guess, I guess maybe around the world too, if you've got some thoughts on what the, how that works out for other countries as well. Um, but before we dive into the passport specifically, tell us a little bit about what that means in terms of ethics and biomedicine and, um, and some sort of some of the conversations that go along um, that, that go along with that, because I, I, I find it very interesting. We've talked about CRISPR a lot in the past. And so some of the ethics that surround that, but give us a rundown on, on what you do and, and, and what your line of work is. So I, um, in my, both in my teaching and in my research and, in, and, and in publication, I try to apply moral theory to a variety of problems in professional and applied ethics. So my teaching has included, uh, for 15 years, I, I taught uh, undergraduate medical students, taught them about medical ethics, informed consent, uh, allocation of scarce medical resources, uh, just a whole bunch of issues uh, that they'll encounter when they practice clinical medicine or when they do research. Actually, my own special field of research interest is research ethics. So I, uh, I publish uh, fairly widely on, uh, on the kinds of ethical problems that arise when experimentation is being done on human beings. And mm. for example, there were some issues to do with research ethics that applied to the pandemic, to the COVID pandemic, because when we were uh, desperately scrambling to develop a vaccine, uh, one way of uh, expediting the process would have involved deliberately infecting healthy mm. young people, some of whom 
would have been vaccinated and some of whom wouldn't have been vaccinated to get results very quickly as to how effective our experimental vaccines were. Now, the obvious ethical problem was that uh, we were considering, and these are called challenge trials where you actually infect people deliberately. The alternative is to wait. You know, you go to a society where there's lots of, uh, where the pandemic is raging, and so the mm -hmm. chances of people being infected are higher, and you give some uninfected people a vaccine and others you don't, and then you try to monitor, but that's much slower than actually deliberately infecting people, some of whom have been vaccinated. The, the obvious mm -hmm. ethical problem is that there's no treatment right, for, yeah. uh, uh, for anyone who's infected with the virus. And although for healthy young people, it may not be lethal nearly as often as it would be for elderly people or immunocompromised people, still, you know, you can get long COVID, you can get sustained right, yeah. organ damage, you can be sick for weeks, months, years, maybe forever. So uh, people were willing to volunteer for these trials. So one of the ethical issues was, well, okay, if you've got uh, informed consent and you've got healthy volunteers, is it nevertheless ethical deliberately to infect people in an effort to save a very much larger number of people mm -hmm. yeah, right. uh, by developing the vaccine quickly? So that's, that's the kind of issue I uh, uh, about which I write and do research. I, I've also um, done quite a lot of research and, and publishing on an area in, in uh, ethical research involving conflict of interest. So it turns out, and it's really related to COVID as well, that uh, most of our new drugs, almost all, are uh, funded by Big Pharma. And the scientists yeah. whose careers depend on that funding uh, then carry out the research and they've got to uh, design the experiments. They can design them so as to uh, bias them in favor of the company's product. Uh, they can bias them in favor of, of minimizing or ignoring a bad side effect. So the people who are doing the experiments on the basis of which drugs are going to be licensed and warning labels are going to be printed are almost all of them funded and their careers depend upon big pharma. And then if they come up with unfavorable results, that might cost the companies billions of dollars, uh, those results tend to be buried. We call it the file drawer effect. They just mm. don't publish them. Or right. they publish them, but they give them a phony spin to make negative results appear positive. I could spend the next hour telling you the different ways in which you can skew research to get the results that a company wants. So how does this oh God, relate to our, it relates to our present predicament because we're taking uh, drugs, and that's what the vaccine is, it's a drug, that have been developed and tested, often developed with public money, by the way, though the profit will go entirely to uh, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and uh, uh, AstraZeneca, private drug companies, even though most of the funding for most of the vaccines was public money. Anyway, they're going to make uh, fortunes of money they're the ones on whose data the drug the drug is just now being licensed. It was authorized on an experimental emergency ba or, uh, basis previously. They're going to be licensed. 
independent scientists don't yet have access to the raw data. That's a real scandal because right. we're asking people to trust public health officials, trust our governments and trust the drug companies. Well, I would have thought as a minimum, we should be able to say to the drug companies, okay, uh, in the, you've got to publish your data, your raw data, so that independent scientists can judge if your analysis of how effective it is and your analysis of how safe it is will really withstand, uh, will really stand up to scrutiny. So I think the governments have let us down up to this point. Uh, and uh, if you want to answer the drug-hesitant people, of whom there are significant numbers, the single most frequently given reason by those who are hanging back from vaccination is that they see the drugs as experimental. They're worried that the side effects, especially the long-term side effects, may, may not be known and that they may be at risk. It's not a completely unreasonable skepticism. And I think we should be able to say to these people, hey, look, the data are all open. They've been analyzed. And here's what they show. And, and in, a, in an environment, in the environment with, um, with big pharma companies who, you know, obviously make absolutely enormous um, uh, sums of money and, and, and have huge profit margins um, and, and often, have, often, often have the corner on the market, um, at least for a long time until their patent protection runs out. Um, you know, is there, is there a, um, is there a, unless their data is being, is being released publicly and can be analyzed independently, is there, what are the, what are sort of like the, um, I don't, I am, I am, I am the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist, but, and I know that this will probably sound like that, like that in that realm. But when, when you're talking about big pharma companies who are producing a vaccine, um, that they are going to make money from and, you know, they're rushing to produce massive to do, to, to mass produce something in, you know, in record time and distribute it in record time and all that stuff. So obviously there's massive cost to it. So money has to be made, but the, to produce a vaccine where like, is there ethical or moral issues at play here with, with big farmer companies, maybe producing a vaccine that, um, that is in their best interest to, uh, like last a certain period of time? I think so. Sure. Like where, like where they, where, where they might intend, like, again, I don't want to sound conspiratorial or anything, but like intentionally, intentionally in quotations, producing a vaccine that, you know, will last a month or, like or sorry, Apple's 12 iPhones, 12 months. You know, like yeah. Like intending I, for them to, yeah. Like, and then you what? need the booster shot and you got to buy the booster shot now. And, and, and you know, these big pharma companies, then they produce these recurring revenues with, it's uh, called, um, it's called functional obsolescence. Right. Like, is that like, what, how, how at play is that idea in, in right now and, and in the work you do? Taylor, you, you and Brian have just raised about four different points and I don't know which to address first, but they're all, <laughs> they're all good questions, all good comments. I'm going to start with a comment that you just made, Brian. You mentioned the iPhone. Actually, every piece of research and uh, inventiveness that went into the iPhone was from university-funded research. It was all public money. Huh, really uh, it was from the space program and the states that some of the discoveries were made. So what we see, and we see this, I, I mentioned this a moment ago with respect to the vaccines, the companies are going to walk away with not millions, not tens of millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars of profit. They may vastly increase their profit by persuading governments that we need a booster shot 
and mm-hmm. and what's the data that we really need it? How soon do we need it? Uh, who needs it? Uh, if it's the companies that stand to make extra billions of dollars who are in control of the information and the data, then there's skepticism. So there, there are separate questions. One is, why don't we have, uh, we used to in Canada have a publicly owned uh, company manufacturing vaccines. It was privatized hmm. decades ago. And so now when Canada faced a crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, vaccines are available, but they weren't available in Canada because the American, the American factories were told by uh, Trump and uh, then Biden to keep the vaccines first for America. We couldn't get them from Europe. And so we were kind of slow off the mark. We've subsequently caught up. But if we had our own vac, I mean, it seems obvious public sense. Why shouldn't there be a public facility to produce high quality, safe vaccines uh, that will be inspected and tested in Canada by Canadians for Canadians and maybe also for the world market? Well, that was a huge gap in our public health uh, uh, armory and uh, Maybe one of the, maybe it's one of the lessons that that uh, we should learn from this is that when the stakes are really high and when research integrity matters and when when the manufacture and access to the drugs is critically important, we shouldn't have to depend on mm-hmm. for-profit companies, each of whom, by the way, if I told you how many thousands of millions of dollars Pfizer has been fined and civil and criminal penalties for fraud, for uh, lack of research integrity, for false marketing of drugs, for example, uh, antidepressant drugs to children, uh, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Eli Lilly, every uh, Merck, every one of the big drug companies has been fined. Again, it's not millions, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, but the drugs are so profitable that they're able to pay these billion dollar fines and still be amongst the most profitable corporations in the world. So yeah, those are important health issues. We fund the research, not just for the vaccines, but for virtually all drugs. It's public research money. That's 90% of the funding. All of the profit goes to the private companies and they control the data. So if we want to be sure about the health and safety of the drugs, about how effective they are and how safe they are, and we we want to be open and transparent. We run into big problems. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to ask um, right now because I, I feel like we're having this um, very critical conversation about um, big pharma companies, rightfully so, and in a way that is not anti-vaccination, but is vaccine hesitant and sort of. We had this um, conversation early on uh, in the pandemic with. Uh, an expert who's, who spoke to us about vaccine hesitancy. And uh, she said to us that you should be vaccine hesitant and it's okay to be vaccine hesitant. You have to ask these questions and, and then try to find the answers. And, and in most cases, the answers are there. Brian, but, I want to interrupt. Um, I want to interrupt you. Was it Maya Goldenberg, whose excellent book on vaccine hesitancy was published this past spring? No, it wasn't actually. It was uh, I think it was Iris Gorfinkel, yeah, Dr. Iris, Gorfinkel. Iris Gorfinkel um, but we should we should speak okay, to him. Okay, I want to plug I want to plug Maya's uh, excellent book. Uh, she's at uh, the University of Guelph, and um, 
uh, she she developed some of the the themes about vaccine hesitancy. I wouldn't say. I mean, it's rash. What was the, what was the last name? What was Maya's last name? Golden uh, Goldenberg. Goldenberg. Or sorry, or is yeah. it Goldberg? Oh God. Well, we'll Google, 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 Google will confirm. <laughs> um, it, but the reason why I bring that up too is because you know, like asking these questions and, and sort of. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll put it this way: It sounds to me like, and uh, it sounds to me that when you have a conversation about ethics, you can't really have a conversation about ethics un- unless there's transparency in the process. Because um, the ethical thing to do in a situation. How are we supposed to evaluate the ethics of a situation if we don't actually know fully what's going on? Because a lot of these things are like these quote unquote backdoor deals and all of these things. So how do we, especially when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, how do we evaluate the pharma companies and know that the product that we're getting is is worth getting? Because I'm assuming Dr. Schaefer that that you have received both doses of the vaccine. So are you, are you, would you consider yourself to be vaccine hesitant? So why, then why did you decide um, that it was worth getting the vaccine? How, how, what were your moral ethics in, in that, in, in making that decision? There, there are ethical questions. There are also prudential questions. So I had to decide, as every Canadian or every North American, Western European, Asian, African has to decide, I had to ask the question, well, so what's best for me? Um, what, what, will be, what will protect my health and, uh, and the health of my family uh, most effectively at least risk? And then I had to ask, uh, so that's a prudential question, what's best for me? And then at the same time, I had to ask, uh, what's best for society? I'm not just an isolated individual. I'm a, I'm I'm somebody's husband. I'm somebody's father. I'm somebody's neighbor. I'm somebody's university professor. So I'm in contact with people. So what's best for society? And with any luck, the two will coincide. They don't always. Um, but the general question you were raising, Brian. Um, I mean, the short answer, the one sentence answer is good ethics requires good facts. So to know what the prudent thing to do is, just as to know what the morally right thing to do is, you, you've got to have accurate information, which means that you've got to have access to the data and the analysis of the data. And you've got to be at least reasonably confident that the data is trustworthy and that the analysis is sound when you make these decisions, when you ask the question, well, what's best for me and what's best for my community, for my uh, province, for my, uh, for my country, for humanity? So uh, we've been talking about reasons to be skeptical or hesitant based on the miserable, dishonest, and often corrupt track record of big pharma and the dependency on pharma money of the researchers who are running the experiments and so on. So there is reason to be, uh, to be skeptical. My mm. skepticism was overcome very early on. Uh, I still want to see the data. I still want independent uh, scientists to have access to the data and to analyze it. And I'm, I'm feeling really frustrated that 
we're making these decisions behind a veil of ignorance. There's just so much that we still don't know. For example, mm. how much protection will, uh, let's say, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine or the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson, how much protection will they give fully vaccinated people against the original COVID virus and, uh, and against the alpha and beta and gamma variants the answer was about 90%. Now, um, we're not, with the Delta variant dominant in many parts of the United States and almost totally dominant in, in uh, the United Kingdom and becoming more dominant in Canada, the answer isn't really clear. So we know that people who are fully vaccinated, uh, that a number of them, but we don't know what percentage are getting breakthrough infections. Mm -hmm. But what I think is really persuasive so far, if it's accurate, and I'm not sure it is, but I think it is, uh, is that very few people who are fully vaccinated are becoming really sick, mm -hmm. are ending up in hospital or are dying. So I find that data from Israel, from the United Kingdom, from Canada, Places that are now uh, ex experiencing the beginning of the fourth wave of COVID, where 50, 60, 70, 80% of the population are fully vaccinated. I don't think any place has yet got to 80% fully vaccinated, but their, uh, their hospitals are not being maxed out. Yeah. Manitoba, I'm, I'm at the University of Manitoba. I live in Winnipeg. We were shipping people out of province. We were shipping them to wow. Ontario and some to Saskatchewan and Alberta and some to the States because our healthcare system was being overwhelmed. And at the same time, of course, people who have non-COVID related problems, people who are in constant pain and need hip replacement surgery or knee replacement surgery, people who need cancer treatment and people who need heart treatment for heart disease weren't getting it. So the consequences of, of the serious infections and the hospitalizations and the deaths were really a huge problem. They seem to be a much less serious problem in the places with high vaccination rates. So that's a kind of public health data that I find persuasive. If it turns out that either the Delta variant or the Lambda variant or some future variant, because we're going to be hit by, an, there's so many unvaccinated people, we're going to get new variants. Mm -hmm. If the vaccine ceases to be effective, then either we're going to need uh, booster shots or they're going to have to tweak it. Mm -hmm. I hope we, there's a kind of race between vaccination and uh, and the uh, COVID virus and its ability to uh, to mutate in ways that help it to escape from our vaccination. So far, right. the results suggest that uh, most people are pretty well protected when after they've been fully vaccinated. For how long? Difficult right, to say, six really months, a year. Uh, will they need a booster shot? If we get the booster shot when we don't need it, uh, that'll be billions of dollars in the pocket of pharma. And it'll mean that people in Africa and Asia and South America who haven't, tens of millions of whom haven't had even a single shot will be deprived. Yeah. So I want to see really good evidence. Uh, but yeah, so to back to your question, Brian, you asked me, am I fully vaccinated? The answer is yes. 
and why, despite my skepticism about pharma and my uh, sincere reservations about the fact that, that we don't have access to the data yet for independent scientists to, uh, to analyze it, I can see from the public health data that it looks as if it's giving um, very good protection, against, not against infection, I'm not sure about that, but very good protection against serious illness. So I think yeah. that makes it worthwhile. And and your like your description of the scenario right there sort of creates this perfect storm for the the ethical conversation to exist around vaccine passports because there are people who are very much vaccine hesitant. There are people who are anti-vax, and the, the really the race is right now to get everybody fully vaccinated so that there's um, not uh, the mutation of the virus into these different variants and. So that we can we can keep the coronavirus, the COVID nineteen, at, at bay, but the government is stepping in to make vaccine passport uh, to to introduce these vaccine passports, and you know, with the federal government uh, mandating that all federal government employees need to be vaccinated, how does that play into the ethical conversation? Like, is that ethically okay for them to do that? Okay, so it's taken us half an hour in a program <laughs> dedicated to vaccine, the ethics of vaccine passports. We've, We've really set the, the word, stage, though, for the phrase fair. vaccine passport to be uttered by anyone, but you've done it, Brian. Uh, so, it, you know, there are so many issues and arguments that, that we're going to just be, we'll be able to flag a few of them and probably not explore any of them in any uh, great detail. But let me just introduce the topic by saying that uh, a number of months ago, the federal government established a panel to make recommendations for the government on vaccine passports. And I was asked to be a, an expert consultant to this panel. So I met with, uh, uh, with the panel on a, uh, for a couple of afternoons. And uh, I'm just going to summarize in a sentence what I told them. Uh, I said, uh, we're going to get them whether the federal government does it or not. So the only question is whether the federal government will develop an app and regulations and criteria that will get us a, a vaccine certification that's, that can't be easily forged and that protects people's privacy and medical confidentiality and that can be a model for provinces across the country and then for organizations, for um, for the entertainment industry and the hotel and restaurant industry and for schools and universities and for the military and for whether we can have a standard model that's developed centrally and that will uh, maximize the effectiveness of the passport, prevent its being easily forged, because that could undermine its effectiveness totally, and protect people's privacy. That was my view then. We're going to get it anyway. Let's do it right. Let's have the federal government do it. And they dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, uh, they didn't do it. Uh, and I think it's because uh, our prime minister wasn't sure it was a good idea. May, perhaps he was persuaded by some of the arguments against it that it would lead to a big brother state, that we would be tracked, that we would lose our privacy, and that it might create a two-tier society. 
those who have the passport and those who don't and lead to inequalities. Now, I think all of those are phony arguments. I think they're really weak, but my hunch is that uh, Trudeau was persuaded. And so the result is we have no, well, we'll have to get a federal vaccine passport if Canadians are going to travel internationally. So the one we get will eventually have to be developed with other countries, and they're working on that now so that the the British citizens and French citizens and Italian and Hungarian and Russian will all have access to the same passport. And there are problems with that, by the way, because they're not all accepting the same vaccines. And right. how long should the passport be valid? Is it Should it be valid for six months or is the vaccine going to be effective for 12 months? And does it depend on your health status and how old you are, how long your antibodies will last? And so there are lots of questions. We will get a federal government one, but they've been so slow that each province has been left to go on its own. Ontario, Saskatchewan and Alberta have conservative large C premiers who, who apparently are afraid of their libertarian constituency. So they've said, we're not going to have a vaccine passport. That doesn't mean there won't be vaccine passports in Ontario. It means that each restaurant, each gym, each bar, each uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs or the, or the um, uh, Toronto Argonauts football team, or the, uh, they're all going to mm-hmm. have to come up with their own passport uh, they're all going to have to come up with their own regulations, and it's um, it's a hodgepodge. It's a mess, uh, mm-hmm. which is too bad. So we're going to get them. I would like to see uh, well-designed apps, right, for your smartphone, but not everyone has a smartphone. So we've got to have a plastic card. It's got to have a QR code. It shouldn't be easily forged. Uh, it shouldn't be tra- trackable. But a lot of the arguments, I'm sorry to be rambling on here, but a lot of the arguments just don't make sense to me. Like one of my colleagues from the U of T, a bioethicist, I've debated him on uh, television and radio a couple of times. So he says, hey, we don't want to be tracked. And I, I haven't asked him yet, but does he have a visa card? Right, yeah. <laughs> does he have yeah. a, a Facebook account? Is he on Twitter, uh, TikTok? Uh, I mean, yeah, tracking, right. crikey, it, it's easy to, I mean, the government that should, was, should that was use that the cards to that. track people, but it's so minor, it's such a minor, and as for invasion of privacy, crikey, um, uh, Taylor and Brian, um, I was on an open line radio show, I think it was in Alberta, I can't remember, I've done so many now, where one of the callers said, uh, people knowing my vaccine status is like them knowing that I've got a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> and I my jaw just hit the ground when he when he said, I mean, it's so trivial. N- knowing that you're vaccinated doesn't tell you anything uh, about your health <laughs> status or anything about your health. Uh, your driver's license tells people your address, your age, your eye color, your height, whether you've consented to organ donation, your vaccine passport just says that yeah. you've been vaccinated. And if you and if you lose your driver's license, you 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 just you're like, man, I hope they return it to me because <laughs> yeah. it has my address on it. That's right. That's right. So I I I just can't. The arguments against and as for the two tier argument, and I, maybe I could slip that in before we totally run out of time. Uh, um, it 
it, we are distinguishing if we've got the passports and if your hairdresser or your barber or or your local uh, favorite coffee bar says you've got to produce it, then those who don't have, who haven't been fully vaccinated, aren't going to get access. So you can say, okay, that's making a two-tier society. New York, by the way, has just become a two-tier state. And New York City has become a two-tier city, I should say. So the whole, to any indoor space in New York, you're going to have to have proof to certify that you've been fully vaccinated. Now, is that discriminatory against people who, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons, have chosen not to be vaccinated? Those who can't be vaccinated should be medically exempt. We should mm-hmm. make reasonable accommodation. And and should that should there be should there be and should there be for those for 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 people who are medically exempt should there be something to prove medical exemption as as opposed to as opposed to the simple choice. Okay, I think that, yeah, that's, sure. that's a good question, Taylor. And my answer would be the QR code should include those who are medically exempt. And there aren't many people who will be medically exempt. Now, what about right. people who, because they're vaccine hesitant or uh, for whatever reason, choose not to be vaccinated? I think we should make reasonable accommodation wherever possible. Here's an mm. example. At the Calgary Stampede, there was something called a Nashville North Tent, where it wasn't actually a tent, it was a canopy. And huge numbers of people crowded together, drinking, dancing, singing, and listening to country music, uh, which I think I think country music might be a danger to your health, by the way. But leave, leave that <laughs> I aside. Totally agree. They, agree they made it accessible only to people who had could prove that they were fully vaccinated. But they also allowed people entry who would do a fast COVID test and test negative. So that's a, if the tests are reasonably accurate, big if, um, if some people want to engage in activities, they should be, uh, but, but are unwilling to be vaccinated. If they can provide, and we should, accommodate them with a an alternative route if there is an alternative safe route such as regular testing and uh, negative test results maybe social distancing maybe wearing wearing uh, masks but it's not discrimination favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Dr. Schaefer, what about um, like my, so um, my late uncle uh, was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, um, had a, a, uh, an, an addiction to opiates, um, struggled to, he, he couldn't read either and he struggled to fill out forms for public housing and stuff. Say he got vaccinated had both doses, 
um, doesn't have a smartphone, and like how do how do we make sure that people like that aren't getting left behind? Like this is a guy who would go to the drugstore, you know, three or four times a week to either fill prescriptions or maybe steal. I'm I'm not sure totally, but um, he was going in there anyway, like always going to the drugstore. And if that was a space where you know it required a vaccine passport to enter. How do we make sure that people like that have access to the passport and that they're not getting left behind? Right. You know what? It's a re- that's a really good question. So let's start with being vaccinated. We have to make the vaccine accessible to people mm-hmm. who are. I was going to say homeless. I don't. I'm not homelessness. May not be a word we use anymore. Housing mm-hmm. challenged. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, people who aren't in the same place. People who. Uh, don't have jobs, people who are uh, economically or racially or ethnically marginalized for any of a number of reasons, people who have, uh, who are cognitively impaired or who have challenges with alcohol or drugs. So, So we can do it. It's a challenge for us, for society. There should be pop-up clinics. There should be home visits. Okay, so they get fully vaccinated and then you say, well, okay, so uh my uncle who's alcoholic or drug addicted doesn't doesn't have a smartphone well manitoba which was the first province i think it's the one good thing our provincial government has ever done uh they brought in a vaccine passport and there is an app for your smartphone but there's a plastic card so your uncle could carry the plastic card if he's got a wallet and he's going to pay for his drugs in the drugstore or his toothpaste, then he could have mm-hmm. the plastic card. Uh, I, th- I think we have to, we can't assume that everyone's middle class and middle aged and leads a, leads a coherent and well-organized life. We've got to make sure that, that whatever scheme we, schemes we introduce to protect the health and safety of Canadians, to minimize the number of people who get very sick and die and to minimize the stress on our healthcare system so the people who need to use it for any reason have access to it. We've got to be imaginative. We've got to be accommodating. We've got to make reasonable accommodations. But at the end of the day, if, if you choose not to be vaccinated, which is your right, no one's going to be forcibly vaccinated, you may not have access to shopping malls. You should be able to get groceries, but you might have to get them online mm-hmm. or have and somebody back- else do your shopping for you because your right to choose not to be vaccinated shouldn't interfere with the right of young children who can't be vaccinated or the right. immunocompromised who either can't be vaccinated or the vaccines won't protect them to mm-hmm. a safe environment. Your right to swing around your fit, your liberty to swing around your fist stops when your fist comes in the vicinity of my nose. So we've got to minimize harm to others and at the same time try to accommodate those who either can't or won't be vaccinated. Yeah, I was I was I was going to say there that that I was going to ask I and mean, you kind of answered the you answered the the you answered it as it came as it came into my head that the backbone of the ethical that of the ethics of a vaccine passport um, are that when your, when your decisions start, when, when the decisions that you start to make start to be, have massive implications for, for others in your community and the community around you, that's when, that's when that, that is at the, at the foundation of the, of the ethical, 
uh, argument for vaccine passports. See, right. I, I, as a philosophy professor, I, I often uh, use as one of my textbooks for my applied ethics students, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. And mm. uh, Mill in On Liberty famously enunciates what, what he calls his harm principle. So Mill starts from the principle of individual liberty. You should be able to live your life according to your values and your choices. If you're an autonomous adult, he's not talking about kids who need paternalism, need to be protected against their own inexperience and lack of knowledge and, and impulsivity. But if you're a competent adult, you get to choose how you want to live your life. And uh, But when your personal decisions put others at risk of harm, or when you're, what you're doing causes harm to others, then society and your neighbors can consider whether to limit your liberty. If what you're doing causes no harm to others, nobody should interfere. We shouldn't interfere with you to make your life better. We, sh mm -hmm. we can only interfere with you to prevent you from harming others. And then our interference has got to be minimal. We can only interfere the minimum necessary to protect others from harm. And proportionately, we can't, our interference with you can't cause more harm than good. And it's got to be an interference that's actually effective, that will, will successfully prevent harm to others. So if the COVID vaccine is safe and effective, and if it will protect society and allow society to reopen and people to go back to uh, at least a simulacrum of their normal lives, then that's a really important social benefit. And it'll if it'll protect your neighbors and your own family and you from serious harm, then that's a good reason for, dis for restricting, not for discriminating against people who aren't vaccinated, but restricting their access to places where they put others at risk. Mm -hmm. When in the, in the, in the environment that we find ourselves in now, where we have uh, several different variants of of COVID, all of which we all of which we think, as of now, um, the vaccine protects against dis like disease, serious disease, hospitalization, and death. Not you know, jury seems to still be out on the on uh, on infection for Delta in particular. But in the world where where the vaccine right now is is doing its job to to make people less sick from COVID, keep them out of hospitals, keep them from dying. Um, how transitory do you see something like a vaccine passport being um, in Canada and 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 around the world as something that we need to um, like? Uh, yeah, how I guess that's a simple way to put it. How transitory do you think it that, that you think it might be? I think that's a really good question. And um, the answer is, it depends. So uh, if, if as a result of mass vaccination, and maybe partly as a result of having vaccine passports, enough of the people who are hesitant say, oh, crikey, if I live in New York City and I can't go into any indoor space unless, I can, the point? unless I've been vaccinated, <laughs> maybe I'll overcome my hesitancy. So if we get to the point of herd immunity and COVID disappears or virtually disappears, just becomes a minor little hum in the background rather than a, 
a, a deafening cacophony in the foreground. If that happens, we won't need vaccine passports because the vaccine will have won and COVID will have been defeated. Okay. Some people think that's never going to happen. I have no crystal ball. Uh, I'm not a virologist or a public health expert. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. So uh, I read the literature. I think it might happen. Probably it won't. But if, if it does happen, we won't need vaccine passports. Then at the other end, if this uh, clever virus beats us, if it defeats the vaccine and uh, the vaccine is no longer useful, then unless we can tweak the vaccine or come up with a new one, vaccine passports will also be no longer useful because mm. being vaccinated won't protect you. So if, mm. vac so if being vaccinated totally protects you we don't, and the community, we don't need the passport. And if it, if it loses its efficacy, we don't need the passport. Or if it turns out that uh, it's harming more people and it's helping, then we're going to stop the vaccination program, except for uh, just uh, tiny pockets of people for whom the ratio of benefit and harm might be different. So yeah, so long as so long as we need the passport, we're going to get it, and we're either going to get a uh, an efficient, effective, safe, forgery-proof, privacy-protecting passport produced by governments. So far, only Quebec and Manitoba. Quebec has said it's going to have one. Manitoba already has one. Mm. Those are the only two governments in Canada. The federal governments announced that hundreds of thousands, probably going to turn out to be more than a million people are going to have to be vaccinated if they want to continue working for the federal government or for right. any industry they regulate. So that means banking yeah. and telecommunications and transportation. And they've announced wow. that every airline passenger and train passenger and boat passenger is going to have to be vaccinated. But they didn't say whether whether they're going to have to prove that they've been vaccinated. Are yeah, they going? Right. To, some universities are saying it's going to be attestation. You tell me you've been vaccinated, you get onto campus or you come into residence. Others, I presume, are going to be less trusting. I don't know what the federal what the federal government position is going to be, and they're going to say you've got to produce proof, a certificate that proves that you've been fully vaccinated. So. All that's in the future. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I see. I see. Uh, I also see as it has as as has been the case in the U.S. over the past few weeks, um, like a game of dominoes, you know, um, it in, in, from the private from the uh, on the private side of things. Not I'm not I'm not sure on the government side of things in terms of mandates and stuff, um, but at least on the private side of things. Um, you know, like we saw it, we saw it here in Nova Scotia with lockdowns, um, when businesses actually started making the decision to close their doors before there was even official government, um, an, an, a government obligation to do so. And when that started happening, businesses start, it, it start it starts a domino effect of other businesses looking businesses in this in similar industries starting to go okay well we're going to do that now we're going to do that and you know mm -hmm. you end up being the black sheep if you don't if you don't do that especially when it it makes sense so i think um yeah i, I fingers crossed for the environment where um where covid uh the vaccine beats covid and we and it fades into the background and vaccine passports are no longer necessary because as as, as much as i as much as i when, when when the whole conversation of vaccine passports started 
uh, months and months ago when the vaccine became available and that, that I, the idea of having something that proves that you're vaccinated came up. I will admit that at first, at first, at first thought I went, Oh wow, that makes a whole lot of sense. And then there was a bunch of arguments that came up that made me think, you know, I, I can, but I also see how that is now, you know, that that is now a, you know, a government body in, you know, possibly infringing on somebody's, on, uh, on somebody's, um, rights and freedoms. And then, and then, but then when, when you bring it back into the conversation of, well, now the, the decisions that you make, as long as they are not harmful to anybody else, that's, th- those are your decisions to make. But as soon as th- that your decisions start affecting the health and well-being of the people around you, the community around you, that is where the community at large, i.e. the government, gets to come in and, um, and, um, and, and, uh, Come in and, and um, intervene. Intervene. <laughs> intervene with with what you're with what you're doing. Uh, I I have one more question before we wrap up. Um, I'm curious about uh, the the vaccine passport program in Manitoba. Uh, I know that Quebec is launching theirs on September 1st. I think the first of the month. And I'm I'm wondering, did you say Manitoba is the only province right now to have a vaccine passport requirement? Uh, well, lots of provinces have uh, individual uh, businesses or organizations or um, that are requiring uh, that anyone who gets entry show pr- uh, can show proof that they've been vaccinated. But Manitoba mm-hmm. is the only provincial government that's actually created a government plastic card with a QR code on it uh, that can be scanned and uh, it's the only one that's uh, produced an app that you can download to your phone in addition to or instead of your, uh, your plastic card. Uh, but uh, proof of certification is being required across the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, what the proof is and uh, how safe it is and how effective it is, and uh, that will that'll depend. It's a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge. The more I just say this, Alberta has rejected a vaccine passport. Saskatchewan has rejected a, and Ontario has, but the U of T and uh, the University of Guelph and Seneca College have all said, "You want to come into residence? You're a student. Show us proof that you've been vaccinated." Mm-hmm. And uh, I think by the time the autumn rolls around probably most Canadian universities and colleges will be requiring it. And if the, if the province in which those universities and colleges are situated haven't produced an official vaccine passport, then they're still going to require proof. Mm-hmm. It just, it isn't going to work as well. And it may be easily forged, which let me just sort of make as a last point, which means that you might be sitting in a restaurant or uh, sleeping in a residence, taking a shower with other people, and you think everyone's fully vaccinated, and they may have forged documents. I, I don't want to sound cynical, but I know that there are already forgery businesses that are well, uh, producing If the products. door is open, people will walk through it. Do, do you think, uh, like, okay, final, 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 final question. As a resident of Manitoba uh, with a vaccine passport card then now how much of a pain in the ass has it been going places has it been pretty much 
business as usual or has it sucked? You know, I think, it, I think it'd be a pain in the ass <laughs> if you didn't have it. I, um, you know, it's, it, it, you sort of put me on the spot. I've actually used my card once. I used it to go to a uh, rainbow stage to watch my granddaughter perform. And it was very exciting. And I had to produce the, I had to produce the card, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not dining indoors at restaurants. Mm. Um, uh, I didn't go to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers game, but uh, when there have been two games, twenty I think 28,000 fans the first game, wow. 22,000 the second, and they were required, all of them, to produce the passport. So I think increasingly, sports and entertainment venues, I mean, crikey, think about it. 30,000 people, or if it's the Blue Jays, maybe 50 or 80,000 people all crowded together, cheering and shouting, uh, cheering on their team, uh, yeah. all sorts of aer aerosolized viruses. Those could easily be super spreader events as, oh, yeah. as are bars. So I think uh, uh, when I'm ready to go uh, to dine indoors as opposed to have takeout food from a restaurant or go back to a coffee shop or to go on campus you know i i haven't been to my office for a year and a half wow and can't i can't go on to campus i mean i this is going to change soon i expect unless i get a special letter of permission i've got to provide a reason why i have to be in my office as opposed to teaching online via zoom or uh, attending meetings via zoom now that's wow. going to change this winter will we be required well to produce proof of full vaccination? Some universities, the answer is yes. At mine, the University of Manitoba, the answer is to be decided. They're thinking about it now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Professor Arthur Schaefer, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today and to uh, to discuss this. It's certainly been a topic that has been front of mind, mind for, for me for, for a long time. And, uh, and in particular, the ethics of it have been, uh, have been a, a question mark for me and I've been really, uh, been really eager to, to cover it. So I thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat about with, uh, chat about, chat about why am I, I've lost my ability to communicate, chat, chat about, about that, chat passports. about that with us today. <laughs> there we go. Um, thank you, professor, professor Schaefer. And, uh, I, uh, yeah, thanks for sitting down with us. Taylor, Brian, nice to meet both of you. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.